Hello, hello to all our listeners out there. Welcome to The Unscientific Method, where we unpack the research and lives of the young scientists doing amazing things all around us. I'm your host, Beth, and I'm super excited about the guests that we have on today, Dr. Alex May. Alex grew up near here in Langley, BC, and then he went to Montreal for his bachelor's at McGill and came back to UBC for his PhD in theoretical physics. And now he's doing a postdoc, which is an academic research position that follows your PhD, allowing you to continue and grow your own ideas of research, as well as exploring some other areas in your field. Um, and he's doing this at Stanford. So Alex is a, is a quantum physicist. And if you're like me and have really no idea what that means, you're not alone. He's got the coolest phrases in some of his paper titles when I look these up. This is amazing. Like summoning information in space time uh, or where and when can a qubit be as well as holography. Holography? Is that how you say that? Yes. Holography. Holography entropy zoo. Like that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, we're so excited to have you here. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to be here. So since you're a quantum physicist, can you start off by telling us what quantum means? Yeah, so quantum is usually associated with what's called quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is a sort of very general mathematical framework into which all of our, well, almost all of our theories in physics fit. So it's like the most basic set of rules that everything follows, or we think everything follows. and those rules are, are different than what we're used to in our day-to-day -day lives. They're sort of obscured. They're obscured in the way that we usually interact with things, but they become apparent in certain contexts. And the most common context which, in which they become apparent is really small things. So like atoms or even say electrons or something like that. And they can also become apparent when you make something really, really cold. Um, so if you've ever heard of something like a superfluid or a superconductor, these are also quantum phenomena and that it's really the rules of quantum mechanics that become relevant there. What do you, what do you mean by the fact that it's not, not like what we see in a regular life? Yeah. So, okay. Some of the things that are different, one is that, well, okay. So the, my, my favorite thing about quantum mechanics is something called quantum entanglement. If you have a, a regular thing, like a, a thing that we can interact with, like uh, my computer say, the computer is completely described. If I tell you where each little tiny piece of the computer is, right? So if I tell you like this transistor is here and this like key, the M key goes here, point by point where everything is, then I've completely described for you the computer. Um, I describe each part and that describes the whole thing. In quantum mechanics, that is not true. So if you have two quantum particles, like say two electrons, and I tell you everything there is to know, about electron one by itself, and then everything there is to know about electron two by itself. I have not told you everything about the combined system, electron one plus electron two. The, the, the sum is more than each part in, in quantum mechanics. Yep. Yeah, and what does that mean for, for how you think about how they interact? Is there is there a different set of mathematical rules or do you, do you have to describe them with kind of all, I guess, I mean, I guess that's the same question is, is it, how do you, how do you think about how there's this kind of quantum side of the world and, and forgive me if this is kind of a naive question, but uh, there's a, this quantum mechanics side of physics. And when do you move out of that? How do you, how do you kind of move back and forth between these different types of physics? Yeah, that's actually, that's a, I mean, it's not a naive question at all. It's a, it's a great question. And somehow that's a harder question than understanding quantum physics by itself. Like how quantum physics can fit into our 
regular understanding of the world, which we call it classical, how you how you transition between them and where you draw the line between them. These are very, very challenging questions. And I think that we still don't fully understand them. So where this kind of comes to a point is in the description of how measurement works in quantum mechanics. In science, one of the most basic things we do is we make measurements. And in quantum mechanics, this becomes a little bit more subtle, what we mean by a measurement. In particular, uh, when you, you have a measurement device, the measurement device is like a classical thing. It's like, it tells you where a, a certain particle is, or it tells you, you know, if some particles that they, they have a, a sort of magnetic property that makes them sort of like a, a little tiny magnet that's either pointing up or pointing down. You might measure if it's pointing up or if it's pointing down. At the end of the day, you find out up or down, right? And this is the usual sort of description of things. Before you measure it, it can be neither up nor down. It can be in what's called a superposition, some sort of combination of up and down. And there's some kind of process that happens when you measure where you go from unusual thing of super, uh, superposition of up and down to just up or down. How that process happens and sort of how the measurement device fits into that process, how you as an observer fits into that process, yeah, it, it is still is still poorly understood. Oh yeah, so is this is this the classic experiment of as soon as you observe it, you've changed its properties, and so therefore you don't actually know what the state was initially. Yeah, that's right. So for for some quantum mechanical states, they're they're in this superposition of of up and down, or or some two ways it could be, and when you measure it, it ends up being up or down, but before you've measured, it's it's neither up nor down, and it's not like up or down, but we're not sure about it. It's not up and down. It's not up or down. It's some other thing, not and or or, some other word that we don't have something in the usual English language for that we we call superposition. Can you tell us a bit about your research? What kind of things do you think about? So I think about where quantum mechanics and the theory of gravity meet. I had a caveat earlier that all our theories of physics fit into the framework of quantum mechanics. That's not quite true. Our understanding of gravity, or at least certain questions about gravity, we haven't been able to fit into this framework. We think that it should fit, but we haven't yet been able to do so in a totally satisfactory way. You know, gravity, what I mean by gravity is, you know, our, our laws of physics that govern the way gravity works. So something like the solar system, planets orbiting around each other, or an object on earth, why does it fall? We have a description of this, but it's sort of in conflict with, with quantum mechanics. And in certain scenarios, both of these things become relevant, both quantum mechanics and gravity become relevant. Probably the, the most interesting scenario is at the beginning of the universe. So around the time of the Big Bang, both quantum effects and gravity are, are very important. And if we wanna understand how the Big Bang worked, like if there was something before the Big Bang, if our universe is, is, I don't know, one of many, or if it's embedded in some higher dimensional universe or, you know, any of these exotic possibilities, if we want to understand these things, these sort of big questions, then we need to understand how gravity and quantum mechanics fit together. I don't actually think about the Big Bang very much. What I instead think about is a different place where both gravity and quantum mechanics are irrelevant, which is in the context of black holes. You know, what one way you could think about or one specific sort of question that, that we would ask is, okay, if an observer jumps into a black hole, if I fall into a black hole, what do I see, right? What does the inside of a black hole look like? Yeah, these are, these are very hard questions. We've actually made lots of progress recently, but this is, this is the sort of thing I'm, I'm thinking about. So when you say that there's this 
intersection between quantum effects as well as gravitational effects that are are really important at the Big Bang as well as in black holes. Is that different in our regular kind of existence now? Is it is gravity kind of less of an effect now? And how does how does that kind of shift? Say I'm say I'm here on the surface of the Earth. What's a physical system that I would think about quantum mechanics? Where would I apply quantum mechanics? Maybe I have like two atoms, right? And they're interacting. They're like there's photons flying between them. There's sort of electromagnetic forces. They have charges, things like this. I can do quantum mechanics. I can understand this system. On the other hand, if I have some object, some large object, one thing I need to understand it is my understanding of gravity because it, say, falls. But the thing is that gravity is, is super, super weak as a force. If I have like a large object, I can feel the force of gravity, right? Like things have a weight. But if you have something tiny that quantum mechanics would apply to, like an atom, the effect of gravity is just minuscule. And you, you can't measure it at that scale. Like it's just too weak for you to actually make a measurement and see how gravity affects like a single atom. Both quantum mechanics and gravity, we sort of see those aspects of physics all the time, but like systems where they're both important are more exotic or more rare. Black holes and the Big Bang are two places where those things both are relevant. And, and basically the point is that like for gravity to be relevant, you need enough stuff gather together so that this weak gravity force builds up and becomes strong. And you need it to say be really small so that quantum mechanics, like an atom is super small. At the inside of a black hole, everything is crunched down into like a tiny, tiny point. And so you have like all this mass from a whole star or something crunching down into the size of an atom, right? So now you have a lot of mass in a small space. And so both these things are relevant, quantum mechanics and gravity. The Big Bang is similar. The whole universe in that case is like crunched down into a tiny space. Um, so it's it's relevant there. Wow, that is so cool to think about. So is the is the idea behind what you're doing to understand what's happening in black holes, to understand what's happened kind of at the initiation of of our universe? What's your personal motivation in this? For me, I don't know. Like I am, I am int really interested in these big questions about, say, the Big Bang, but. For me, that's that's somehow not the biggest question. Like for me, the biggest question is just like, what are the basic rules which the universe follows? To get to the most basic rules, they are the rules of quantum gravity because that is where like everything fits into, into one framework. That becomes sort of the most fundamental framework or fundamental lens through which you can understand our universe. And so that that's what motivates me and that's what's exciting to me. It also, you know, it, it lets you address some other really big questions. I mean, they're, they're sort of harder to phrase than, you know, asking like, okay, what, what happened at the time of the Big Bang? This is, it's easy to understand like why that's a big question, but there's other things like, why is there time? Why, why, for example, can I, you know, move forwards and backwards in space, right? I can go up and down my street, but I cannot move forwards and backwards in time. Where does time come from? Is, is there some other description of time or, or other description of space? Are these things built out of something or are they fundamental? These are a little bit more abstract questions, and they might not quite make sense if you haven't thought about these things, but these questions are also very interesting to me. And, and yeah, within the context of quantum gravity, we can address questions like this. That's incredible. As I can't even understand how to start to think about how to address something like that. Is it, is it all mathematical, I assume? It's not necessarily as mathematical as you would think. Like I actually consider myself something of a I'm a bit naive mathematically compared to my peers. I, I, I tend to be a bit more conceptual and I don't have quite the technical powers that 
some of my my friends do. Yeah, so it's not abstract as as one would expect. I mean, the, the question about like, is space built out of something or is there like a microscopic description of space? This is one we've made a lot of progress on recently. And actually Mark Van Remsonk, my, my supervisor at UBC has made a lot of contributions here. So it, it turns out that there is sort of another description of where, what space is built out of. And it has to do with this idea of quantum entanglement that we talked about earlier. And I was talking about this idea that like the whole can be more than the sum of its parts. Somehow space is built out of entanglement. And this is a very, very deep, deep sort of thing that has just emerged in the last 10, 15 years. And then we've understood. What got you into these questions in the first place? Did you all, were you always as a kid, kind of one of those, uh, like how, how did the universe form and, and thinking about kind of space and, and a lot of that? Yeah, when I was a kid, I was I was very into like Lego and uh, this other building block thing called Connect, which is really awesome. It can build mechanical gizmos of arbitrary complexity using Connect, and uh, yeah, had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, as a teenager, I was more of a troublemaker, more in grade eleven or you know late grade eleven or grade twelve. It was like, oh, like what do, what do I actually want to do with my life? And I'm graduating, and I have to like make decisions now. And yeah, I just started like reading, reading a lot, wandering around between different subject areas and trying to figure out what I found most interesting and, and most exciting. And yeah, I sort of stumbled across physics at some point, just really, really liked it and, and sort of went from there. And so you did, you did your bachelor at uh, McGill and did you start with any research while you were out there? Uh, yeah, actually the first paper you mentioned, this summoning information in space-time, that was the summer of my second, yeah, summer of my second year, I, I, I think. I don't think I knew I wanted to be, you know, an academic until that research experience. Um, I, you know, I certainly love, love doing physics, but that summer uh, I got to work with this guy, Patrick Hayden, and he set me up on that project. The community at McGill was really great. Like, yeah, or just a really strong cohort of people that were like to think deeply and could have great conversations with. And we stayed in touch over the summer. Like we'd organize sort of little like student seminars that we'd tell each other about what was happening in our research. And yeah, it was just like the most exciting thing I'd ever done in my life. And I just found out I was like totally obsessed with the problem and really, really satisfied when I could make progress on it. Yeah, was just hooked after that. So, And I, I still work with Patrick, actually. He's my supervisor at Stanford now. Did you start in, in quantum mechanics or, or was it kind of a different area beforehand? It was and still is an area called quantum information. But quantum information, it's a way of thinking about quantum mechanics. So it's the same framework, but at some point, maybe in the 70s or so, people started asking a different sort of question about quantum mechanics. Originally, people were asking things like, how do I describe an atom? What are the energy levels of an electron? How do I calculate them? Later on, people started asking things like, can I use quantum mechanics to build a, a, a different kind of computer? Can I use quantum mechanics to conceal information? They, they started asking about what we call information processing tasks. So it's like, you want to send a private message, you want to send a message, you want to like compute something. Yeah, it's this like practical sort of question. And thinking about quantum mechanics in that way, by asking a different set of questions, you end up with a, a different way of understanding quantum mechanics and a different set of tools. That is what I was doing as an undergrad. Like I was thinking about quantum information. I was doing that, I mean, one, because I thought it was interesting, but two, what I really wanted to do was go into like thinking about what I do now, which is quantum gravity. Quantum gravity seemed 
really scary. It still seems really scary sometimes. It, you know, the mathematics is more involved. It's just like a longer road to get up to a point where you understand enough to contribute. Quantum information, on the other hand, it's a much shorter road to get to a point where you can start doing research. And so as an undergrad, it was sort of a strategic decision to go, okay, I'm going to start doing quantum information. I'm going to get some research experience. But then by sheer luck, it turned out that around the time that I was an undergrad and recently, people have been using these ideas from quantum information to think about quantum gravity. So there was this really natural transition from what I was doing as an undergrad to then bringing that into the field like, like I really wanted to study, which was quantum gravity. So there's this merging of the two fields where it's kind of more practical way to apply everything behind quantum mechanics and merging it into this, this more theoretical research. Yeah, that's right. We want to understand how gravity fits into the framework of quantum mechanics. And it turns out that to do that, a useful way to think about quantum mechanics is through this lens of quantum information, which was developed because where people were asking these other questions about computers and, and sending secret messages and, and stuff like that. Uh, a separate side note on, on quantum computing. I know that's, that's an up and coming area in computer research. Is this at the point where people are starting to use quantum computers at this point in time, or is it still, still a little bit down the ways? Mostly it's down the ways. You know, I, I certainly use in, in my work to understand quantum gravity, I use the theory of quantum computing that's been developed. There are primitive quantum computers that have been built now, like Google famously has a, a, a quantum computer and they're continuing to develop it. At this point, the main thing that quantum computers are used for is like people cook up specific problems that they figure will be very hard to do on a, on a normal computer, classical computer, but should be much easier on a quantum computer. So they're just trying to find like any problem where the quantum computer wins, where the quantum computer is better. So they're not really useful questions yet, but they're trying to, as a proof of principle, show that, that this quantum computer can do something that the classical ones cannot. How do you build something in a quantum framework? Is it, is it actually a difference in the way that you put the parts together or is it deeper than that? Yeah. So, well, maybe I should step back a second and say, okay, what is a classical computer? What is a quantum computer? So a classical computer, it has as its sort of basic unit that it acts on and, and, and processes and changes what we call a bit. Okay. So a bit is a thing that can be in one of two states. So it can be either a state we call zero, or it can be a state that we call one. Often that's say like a little magnet that's stuck in an up position or a down position. A quantum computer, on the other hand, its basic units are what are called qubits. So it's for quantum bits. And those, like we were talking about before, can be not just in, in up or down, but they can be in any superposition of up or down. So the, the main challenge when you're building quantum computer is that you have to do be able to like store these qubits and do things to these qubits. And the, the trick, right, is that if you look at a particle, if you measure it, then it falls into being just up or just down. If you've measured it, it's become a classical thing. It's become a bit. So the qubit, you have to make sure it doesn't get measured. But measurement doesn't have to be intentional. It's just like if, if the qubit like interacts with something inadvertently, the container you have it in, like bumps into bumps into it or if your container say is too hot 
then there'll be like little vibrations that get in and then essentially measure it. As soon as this measurement process happens, then you've just gone back to the classical setting. So somehow you have to make sure that your thing does not get measured. This can be very challenging. It involves doing things like cooling your computer down. So you have to go to like a few Kelvin or millikelvin. You have to, you, you try and store your qubits in a redundant way so that like if they get sort of poked or measured that they can sort of recover from it. Um, so th there's all sorts of challenges. Yeah, they look very different. I mean, classical computer looks like what you're used to, like your laptop or something. A quantum computer looks like a, a giant fridge in some huge room with all these like wires coming in and out of it. So somewhere deep inside of it, there'll be maybe like an electron trapped in a little, little well or individual particles of light called photons flying through specially designed mirrors and things. So yeah, they, they, they look super different. Do you think that quantum computing will turn into something that's in regular use at some point? Yeah, I, I, I do think so. It is, yeah, it's super challenging. Early on, it looked like there were, but every obstruction that has come up, we have found good solutions to. It's a matter of, of building it in, in practice. And now you're taking that theory and you're applying it to quantum gravity. How do you how do you do that? How do you what does your day look like? How do you think about this in the in the day to day context? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. What does my day look like? I, I get this question a lot because because I'm a theorist, so I, I don't have a lab, right? So I sometimes get asked like, well, what do you actually do? <laughs> um, and it's a little hard to describe, but you know, basically, I think, right? Like my job is just to think. So that can be me reading papers on my computer. It can be me in front of a blackboard, maybe with a collaborator, like working things out, discussing things. It could be me just with a blank sheet of paper and a pencil scribbling away. Sometimes you are, you have like a concrete question and you just have to like do some calculation to find out the answer. Other times you aren't sure what the question is or should be. And you're more so like at a conceptual level thinking and, and searching for the right question. And that's actually the harder thing to do than the, the calculation. Do you find you, you try a bunch of different things until you land on, on what kind of work? Yeah, definitely depends on the kind of project, right? Like sometimes there's established little subfields and there's known questions that need to be answered in those subfields. And there's like pretty concrete routes forward. In that case, you might pretty quickly be able to get down to like, okay, I just need to do this calculation or that calculation. When you're trying to push the field in a new direction or like come up with a new direction, or you, you, you know, you have a question, but it's a little bit vague and you don't know how to yet, how to, how to concretely address that question. Then there tends to be this process of like, you try one thing and you calculate this thing. And, and then you kind of go like, mm, no, like this is just off track, but something you did in being off track, like gets you to a little bit of a different question and then you try and ask that one and then that gets you to a little bit of a different question you, you kind of like drift until eventually you settle on ah okay this is this is the nice concrete thing and this is what i should be asking you were mentioning that uh part of your day is kind of at the blackboard with a with a lot of other physicists do you collaborate a lot do you end up working with a lot of other people or or do you find that it's it's a lot of kind of independent thinking and then you bring it back together to to get feedback there's no one way to do physics, right? There's lots of different styles and each physicist has a different style. Different institutions often have different styles. I found UBC was a little bit more independent and Stanford has been a little bit more collaborative. Do you have a preference? Uh, I like them both. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think I do my most creative thinking on my own, but I do my technically strongest work in collaborations. I like to go between these. 
and it is easy when you're by yourself to fool yourself, right? To, to think that you've worked something out when you haven't, or to think that you've addressed the problem in a convincing way when you haven't. So even if I'm working by myself, it's still super important to be like always having these conversations. Yeah, you're just getting a little bit of an outside like check on what you've done. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was I was told uh, based on your earlier conversation with some of my colleagues that you've got full uh, full opinion set around chalk. Oh yeah, there's a culture within the physics community. Yeah, yeah. So there's the 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 legendary Hagamoro chalk. Uh, it comes from Japan and uh, it is vastly superior to all other chalks. <laughs> yeah. So somehow like regular chalk. Well, okay, really bad chalk has a bit of like a like grit to it when you go on a blackboard and it's a little bit, it's like a little bit of nails on a chalkboard, like uncomfortable feeling. Even decent chalk also will often break. Like if you have a whole piece of chalk, you push it on the board, it like snaps. And then it also gets all over your hands, right? Hagamoro has solved all of these problems. So it's, uh, it's thicker, so it doesn't break. It's very smooth which is nice. And then it also has this, uh, this sort of like glossy sheen on the outside. So it doesn't uh, rub off onto your hands, but then somehow the, the glossy sheen like smoothly rubs off when you're using it. Like it's not like a case you have to peel back or something. It just magically disappears as you use the chalk. So I, I don't know how this works, but. That sounds amazing. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's much preferred. And actually there was, there was a, a moment of crisis some years ago when the, the company that made it was going out of business. And so some institutions, like I heard Columbia, the math department in Columbia just bought like thousands of dollars worth of this chalk. And they had it just a, a closet, just stacked just with Hagamoro chalk. And uh, yeah, cause they just never wanted to run out, but somebody bought the company and it's still being produced. So this is, uh, that's amazing. It's a save. Yeah. It's a big yeah. save. What about whiteboards? Thoughts on whiteboards? Well, the, the basic law of whiteboards is that anytime you need a marker, that marker you pick up will be dry. I, <laughs> I, it's so true. Oh I don't know God. how this works, yeah. but I, I think it's because of our habit of like, we use a marker, it goes dry, and then we go like, maybe somebody else will still use it in this condition. And then we put the lid on and we leave it on the, we, we never throw them away. We just put them back. Like, we'll be like, oh, I want to be conservative. I, I don't want to waste. I'll put it back. And then there's all these dead markers sitting everywhere. Yeah, no, it's true. I've definitely done that. I do that with pens too, where I'll like yeah. write with a pen until it's somewhat running out, but I'll be like, oh, maybe it'll be a bit better next time I use it. <laughs> next right? time I use it, yeah. It makes no sense. It makes no yeah. sense. <laughs> Um, so I want to ask you uh, a couple of rapid fire questions. You're meant to answer them in one sentence, but I'm thinking that some of these I think we should talk a bit more about anyway. And they're more about your your own perspective on physics and how you got to where you are. Uh, what are you most proud of? I think that what I'm proud of and what I consider my strength is in coming up with new directions. like. Yeah, there's one thing in particular that trying to fall asleep late uh, late at night one night and something popped into my head and, and two years of my career have been all stemming from this, this idea. And I, I'm most proud of the fact that I occasionally come up with good ideas and then have been able to push forward on those, which I think can be really hard, right? Like, especially when you're junior, it can be very hard to take your own ideas seriously. Yeah, because taking them seriously means like taking time out of the things that maybe you're supervisor or someone is telling you you should be doing so it's it's sort of a big leap to like go off and do your own idea and i'm very proud of myself for for taking that leap and being brave and uh and pursuing that idea and it yeah it, it really worked out for me so 
was there was there a time when you found like oh now this is when I really want to kind of pursue my own ideas was there a, a personal confidence moment that you're like hey I'm actually okay at this I think this is a good idea and and I can pursue that or was it kind of a slow build where where you follow some things a little bit and then decide it's worthwhile it's more of a slow build I mean yeah, I, I don't know. The way it really went is, you know, you have this idea and it just it just was too interesting to not follow up on. And so I had my own personal doubts about myself, but like stop thinking about myself for a second and just go where the idea is taking me, then it just has to be followed. Like it's just too interesting and, and it just forces me to to forget my own insecurities, right? And what's the the hardest part of your research been? Sometimes I make pretty severe mistakes. I think I've been good about being honest about those mistakes when they're pointed out to me, but it's still a hard process to face up to having made them and go through the process of fixing them, of admitting them to people you respect a lot. This is, this is related. So, you know, I had what I think is a good idea. I ended up writing a paper about it. It was, it was published. I was writing another paper about a very similar subject with, with some uh, co-authors. And when that one came out, we posted that. It shows up the next day on this, this website called the archive that we use in physics. And this very bright guy that I know emailed us back and was like, oh, this thing you said, correct, it was wrong. And yeah, it was really, it was really hard because it was already in my published paper from before. So I had to like publish an erratum. It's also hard because I was giving two talks the next day about that. I've been visiting Stanford. I wasn't a postdoc there yet. I was a PhD student. I was visiting and there's lots of famous people at Stanford and I have a lot of respect for them. I was giving talks to them the next day. And then like the night before the ground fell from under me, there was this severe mistake and following through on giving those talks and, and admitting this mistake. And this, this was all very challenging. In research, I think, at least in my experience, there's this, this certain resilience that comes with it where it's like, yes, you are, you are going to mess up. But I hearing you speak about it, it seems like it may may even feel a little bit more personal in your field because it's theoretical and because it's something that you kind of spend that time thinking about. It would be, I can imagine it would be tough to admit, very important and very, very good that that, that can happen and you can have those conversations with people and you get that feedback, but also, also from a personal perspective, difficult. Yeah, for sure. Later on, like in hindsight, the mistake is, well, the mistake was silly. I shouldn't have made the mistake, but like the consequences of the mistake were not as severe as I thought they or they felt at that moment where, you know, I found out I was wrong and, and I had these talks to give and all this. We had sort of been following a good practice in theoretical physics in general is to understand things in lots of different ways. And like, if you if you're making a statement, you should be able to sort of prove it in like three ways, you know? What had happened is one of the ways of proving it or of understanding it had had an error in it. But because we had sort of been following this good practice of doing things in lots of different ways, it was still true. And so the overall conclusions were still there. It, it was a silly mistake, but I think overall, like I had been following a good sort of practice of, of how to do this work. And, and because of that, like it wasn't actually the end of the world, it, despite feeling like it, it, it was okay afterwards. So Well, and you're at Stanford now. So, so clearly the talks went well. <laughs> Apparently it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Okay, the final rapid fire question, and this one I am actually going to do rapid fire. Um, what is your favorite non-physics thing to do? Be with my friends and family and whatever that means. Okay, thanks. That's, that's all for now. 
Um, so thanks so much, Alex, for joining us. This was a lot of fun and I've got so many more questions, but unfortunately we don't have as much time um, would take. I think it would take a lot of time, but maybe you can figure out whether we can go back in time. <laughs> I don't know if that's it. <laughs> I guess you could figure out why we can't go back in time is, is a better. Probably more likely that. Yeah. Give you a really good reason why we can't do that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thank you for joining us. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks to all the listeners for tuning in. Um, I just want to add a little shout out. We now have our uh, science communication workshop to podcast pipeline up and running. And so we've teamed up with Advice to a Scientist, which is this wonderful initiative that promotes mentoring in science, as well as SciCats, who are specialists in science communication training, to put on workshops that will essentially teach you how to talk about your science and how to be a podcast star. Um, and then you can join me on the podcast to showcase your science. So if you're interested, check it out at theunscientificmethod.ca. And if you want to let us know how we're doing or request something that you want to hear about, hit us up on social media, follow us at the.unscientific.method on Instagram or on Twitter at unscientificubc. Send us a message on Instagram, Twitter or at theunscientificmethod at gmail.com if you want to tell us how we're doing or again, tell us a topic that you want to hear about. So we'd love to hear from you. Thanks.